you have your Bibles, let's turn to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus 6, we're continuing our study in the book of Exodus, and one of the things I've learned over the years as a way to win friends and influence people is right after Thanksgiving, after people have had a lot of turkey, right after football games and such like that, where there might be a lot of visitors, you want to make sure you preach a genealogy just to make sure that people's hearts are moved. Actually, what I want to show you this morning is that you and I probably neglect genealogies and don't know what's there. And it's my prayer for you that as you come to this particular text, you would gain an appreciation for what the Lord has revealed in his word. And so we're going to read Exodus chapter 6, verses 10 through 30. And remember that this is God's word. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Here's God's word. So the Lord said to Moses, go, t- go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Yaquin, Zohar, and Shaul, Shaol, the son of the Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amran, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generation. Amran took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, The years of the life of Amran being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab, and the sister of Naashan. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the, he- are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron... On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. O Lord, as we come to your word, we recognize that I, like Moses, 
need the help of your spirit in order to speak the things of your people. Your word is true, but I am sinful and crooked. We pray that you would use me to point this narrow way to Christ. Finally, Father, we ask that you would grant to us the ministry and help of your Holy Spirit so that your word would be heard by your people and you would cause it to saturate our souls. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In a file drawer upstairs in my house, I have a, a little genealogy. It's a bit of a hobby that my dad had, and so when he passed away, I kind of found it interesting to go and look through the Zellner family archives to learn some of the names and who they are, what I didn't know. And to me, it's interesting, at least a little bit, to read about those names and consider, in a sense, that these are my people. And so in my family line, there's a number of Williams and Henrys. But then, of course, there's also a Theophilus Zellner, an Obadiah Zellner, and then my favorite, Millard Fillmore Zellner. Millard Fillmore Zellner, named for the 13th president, who was known for almost nothing else other than being the last of the Whig Party presidents. His parents were trying to hang on to those good old days. Well, it doesn't take much guessing to imagine that Zellner is a, a German name. But to me, the most interesting thing in my dad's notes were to try to answer this question, who was the first Zellner who came to the United States? And here's the things I was imagining. Johann Sebastian Zellner from Germany. Fleeing religious persecution, he decides to come to the new land, and so he gathers his four children and his wife, and they brave the icy waters of the North Atlantic for freedom. Well, it turns out that the first Zellner in the United States was George Peter Zellner. He's born in Hanover, Germany in 1760. He entered the United States in 1778. He was a mercenary, hired by I don't know which side of the revolution to fight and kill people. So much for honor. Well, that little black mark on my family tree reminds us a couple of things. And that is that everybody has some little black spots on their family tree that they're not so proud about. But the other thing that it reminds us of is that though you've patiently listened to my long explanation of Zellner family, genealogies really aren't very interesting unless you're in the family. I suspect I wouldn't really care very much to hear about your genealogy any more than you'd find mine fascinating. So when you come to a place like this, in Exodus chapter 6, you go, why did they drop a genealogy right here? Well, for them, it was their family history. It was their own story, and as odd as the names sound to us, for those who claim Christ as their brother and God as their father, this is really your family history too. Why chapter 6? I mean, you could understand if they put it in chapter 1 or chapter 2, but 6? Yes. Because the passage is meant to teach us that the Lord uses ordinary people to accomplish his purposes. 
It was written decades after the Exodus actually took place. And so this genealogy is put here to answer a natural question that arises when you read the first five chapters of Exodus. Are Moses and Aaron really the right people to be used of God for the greatest deliverance ever known to mankind? That's actually why the genealogy is placed here. On the heels of Moses' protest where he says, I don't think I'm the guy for the job. And then he says, I don't really want to do the job. And then he complains that he's, he's, he's talking and nobody's listening. Moses writes, you see, guided by the Holy Spirit some 40 years later. And so when the next generation is prepared to move into the promised land, this is written to prove that God knew exactly what he was doing. And so our main points this morning are simply two. The first is the structure, and the second is the statement. So let's start with the structure. Various commentators don't exactly know what to do to break down this passage for readers like you and me. So if you noticed last week, I preached all the way through chapter thir- excuse me, verse 13, but I really didn't. I, I preached only to chapter to verse 9. That's the reason, because really the, the next portion, 10 through 30, is there. Uh, and it employs a deliberate structural technique by Moses. And that structural technique is meant to say something of a point. And if you miss it, then what you're going to do is think that verses 10 through 13 are just repeated. Uh, this is kind of what they do in the Old Testament in verse 26 through 30. It's not what's happening at all. In a college town where Greek letters are floating all around, you will be familiar with the letter chi, shaped like an X. Highbrow people pronounce it key, but I wasn't around when ancient Greek was spoken, and neither were they. We'll, get, we'll stick with chi. Well, Moses employs this method, and it's called a chiasm or a chiastic structure, which means that, the, that certain ideas start at the top and they funnel down to the middle. And then in that chiastic structure, they funnel out the bottom, making kind of an X pattern or a shape. It's a really common structure in the Bible. The, it happens a lot. And a really simple example would be something like this. Mark 2, 27, when Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. A more complex one would be in Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And all of that is meant to draw your attention right into the middle so that our eyes see and we hear this broken spirit, broken heart. That's what God cares about. In English, you and I are used to a different structure. Somebody wants to make a point, they make it at the start or they make it at the end, and that's just how it works. However, you are familiar with this. Probably your English teacher taught you something like this. It, it, would, it would go like this, A, B, C, and then your English teacher would say C prime, B prime, A prime. Here's an example in English so you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can take the girl out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the girl. Or another example would be, when the going gets tough, the tough 
get going. Your ear is totally familiar with this kind of stuff. President John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And all of these are written in order to be memorable and poetic. Chiasms in the Bible are not just poetic and memorable. They also make a point, and the point is sitting in the middle. Exodus 6, verses 10 through 12, God told Moses what to do. Moses made excuses about his uncircumcised lips. I can't talk very well, Lord. And then God gave a charge to Moses to bring God's people out of Egypt. And then the genealogy sits in the middle to tell you that Moses and Aaron are precisely the kind of guys that the Lord chose. Then you skip down to verses 26 through 27. These are the two guys, this Moses, this Aaron, that God chose to bring God's people out of Egypt. Verse 28 to 30, slight nuance, exactly the same thing. God told Moses what to do. Moses made excuses about his uncircumcised lips. Again, I don't speak well. The whole structure is built to make this point in the middle. God didn't give this to Moses in the moment of the fact that he had not yet brought them out. In other words, Exodus 6 is not written while Moses is rocking and biting his fingernails and debating whether he should go back and talk to Pharaoh again. Hey, you know, I don't speak well, Lord. And then God speaks. No, Moses, let me remind you of your family tree. You actually come from a, a long line of great speakers. Well, Lord, I don't know. I don't speak well. You see, if that's the way it was written, then you and I as readers are left to read it and go, I don't really know who's right, God or Moses. That's not the way it was written. No, this is written down on the other side of the Exodus after they've been delivered. When the people of Israel have now wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and they're now on the verge of taking the promised land and they're even looking into the promised land, what's the point? Moses was wrong and God was right. 40 years later, God says, I want to remind you through this genealogy, I didn't make any mistakes. Moses thought he was the wrong man for the job. You and I have begun to think Moses is really the wrong man for the job too, haven't we? I mean, we've had the first five chapters of this book. I mean, we've had some glimmers of hope along the way, but we're still dealing with a murderous shepherd who's called to lead God's people, and all we read are his excuses. Then you read that he goes to the Hebrew people, and they don't listen, and he goes to Pharaoh, and he doesn't listen either. And it looks to our eyes like this is the wrong man for the job. God's point. Forty years later, I knew exactly what I was doing. I wonder if you need to be reminded of that today. First, that God knows precisely what he's doing. And secondly, that the Lord uses ordinary people to accomplish his purposes. Any chance that there's a spot in your life that it would be helpful 
to be reminded again what Moses learned? God knew what he was doing. In circumstances I didn't understand, I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know what's frustrating you. Wouldn't it be helpful to know? With the hindsight view of 40 years that the Lord wasn't making a mistake in the spot that you find yourself today. And he always uses ordinary people to accomplish his purpose. I mean, it doesn't matter if at this moment you are called to do magnificent things or ordinary things. God still always knows exactly what he's doing. And he still has not made any mistakes. What is the Lord calling you to do in this season of life? And is there some part of you which deep down sort of despises his plan? It doesn't matter if you're changing diapers or reading the exact same book 50 times to your babies. It doesn't matter if you're turning in assignments that you're not even really sure the teacher is reading. Or you're balancing a, a ledger and handing it to your boss and wondering whether he or she even uses it. Hardly matters whether you're studying for classes that aren't in your major and you're really sort of unsure about why you had to take this one. Or you're at the end just trying to push through and complete the work so that you can get on to the next season of life. There's something inherent in all of us that wants to stare at the spot where we find ourselves and go, this isn't it. There's got to be a next phase which would be better and God says to Moses and to us, I know precisely what I'm doing. I haven't made any mistakes. You, in this place, at this exact time, are the right person for the very work that I have called you to do. Moses is completely ready to throw in the towel. He's ready to check out. And some of you may feel that same way. I think I'd like to check out. 40 years perspective, I wonder if you need to hear Moses say through this clever structure, you know, God was right. I was wrong. I wish I would have trusted him in the things that I could not see. God's always right, isn't he? And none of us in this room have the perspective of 40 years later to testify against God that he's wrong in this moment because we're right. Sometimes it takes you and me 40 years, many years, to see just how right he really was. So the Lord uses ordinary people to accomplish his purpose. That's the structure. Now let's examine the statement. That is... What statement is God making through this genealogy? Certainly he's saying, I'm right, you can trust me. But the genealogy is placed in chapter 6 of all places to answer Moses' objection. And what isn't so obvious to us 3,500 years later would have made complete sense to the first readers. What is it about Moses and Aaron's family line that made them the right people to deliver Israel in this moment? I'm going to borrow some ideas here from Kevin DeYoung, who I think captured the substance of this 
family line. Moses and Aaron are the right people of the job because they come from a priestly family. You go back 400 years before captivity in Egypt, and you might expect that Moses would build out this family line based on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then you might expect that he would cover Jacob's 12 sons. Genealogies in the Bible are always selective, and they're selective because they're making a specific point. This one's no exception. Reuben and Simeon are dealt with in two verses. And then the narrator takes his finger and places it right on this third son of Jacob, whose name is Levi. This is the line of Levi. More specifically, Moses and Aaron are brothers, and they're both descendants from Eli, I mean, it's from Levi. But the narrator wants to draw our attention almost entirely on how this line is formed through Aaron. Wait, I thought Moses was kind of the main guy. Well, for this purpose, God is intending to say, this is the first priest in the nation of Israel, and it's his family line that's going to be the priesthood. So even if you expect this to center on Moses, 40 years later, everybody's going to see in this that Moses and Aaron have a legitimate right to spiritually lead God's people because they're born from this line of priests. Over the next thousand years of Israel's history, God is going to raise up three offices in the nation of Israel. And they are going to lead his people, prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets do not have to be born into the work. They can be raised up. But a priest and a king must come from a particular family line. A priest has to come from the tribe of Levi, and the king has to come from the line of Judah. That's why these two women are listed by name in the family tree, and they're both around Aaron. One is his mother. We now know that the woman who placed the baby in the basket was Jochebed, verse 20, and the other is Aaron's wife. Verse 23 tells us that her name was Elisheba, the daughter of Amenadab and the sister of Nashon. This is God's way of telling us that the line of priests through Aaron intermarried with the tribe of Judah, who would later become kings. It's not an accident. That in the Old Testament, the people of God were looking for a Messiah who would be like a priest, but who would also reign as a king. And so while Moses wrings his hands and says, I don't really think I'm your guy. Pharaoh isn't going to listen to me. Your people aren't listening to me. I don't speak well. The Lord places his finger on this passage as if to say, who else would I choose? Other than someone who comes from a priestly family, that's who needs to be my mouthpiece. Who else would I rather have go and intercede on behalf of my people in front of Pharaoh? You're the people who were actually born to intercede for my people. So they come from a priestly family. They also come from a zealous family. Maybe you remember how the tribe of Levi began. The third son of Jacob, this Levi, you might recall Genesis chapter 34. Levi's sister was a a young woman named Dinah, 
and Dinah was defiled and raped by a man named Shechem. But then Shechem decides that he wants to marry Dinah. In fact, he wants all of his people to likewise marry into this family of Jacob. And so the brothers hatch a plan. Sure, happy to let you marry our sister and the rest of the girls. Just get circumcised. Whole thing's a trick. Three days later, when all the men are incapacitated, Genesis 34, 25, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and they came against the city while it felt secure and they killed all the males. Well, their father Jacob did not affirm the slaughter. He said, your actions are going to make me stink to the land of Canaan. But you see, rooted deeply in the history of this family, Flawed as it is, there is a disdain for injustice. Fast forward, Exodus chapter 32. Moses walks down Mount Sinai and he finds God's people worshiping a golden calf. And the Lord is angry. And Moses goes and he stands at the gate of the camp Exodus 34, 26, he says, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around Moses. And God told the Levites, Take your sword, go back and forth through the camp and kill your brother and your companion and your neighbor. And the Levites did what God told them to do. And from that day forward, God ordained this tribe to serve in his worship. Why? Because they're killers? No. Because they stood with God and hated sin. They had a zeal to be on God's side. Go back to Exodus 6, this genealogy, look at verse 25. And there we meet a young man whose name is Eleazar. He's Aaron's son. And, and Eleazar took as his wife Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. And everybody in this room has mostly forgotten Phineas, but everybody who read this account remembered him very well. Numbers 25. Right before the people of Israel are about to enter the promised land, the Bible tells us that the people of Israel began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And in their sexual immorality... They went and started to make sacrifices to Baal at a place called Peor. And, and the Bible says they yoked themselves to this false god, and the Lord brought judgment upon them, so much so that 24,000 people began to die under God's judgment. Moses cries out to the Lord in order to save God's people, and the Lord says, those who are committing sexual immorality, Baal worship need to be put to death. But after that command was given by God and before it was executed by God's people, the judges and Moses are standing at the edge of the tabernacle and they're, they're weeping over how crazy this is. And suddenly, in what can only be described as a brazen, high-handed move, a man strolls by with a Midianite woman right in front of Moses and the judges and he's taking this woman back to his tent for sex 
Bible tells us this, this man, Phineas, this Phineas, Aaron's grandson, picks up his spear and he follows the man to his tent. And he takes the spear and he puts it through the man and through the woman as they lay there. Savage. Except that the Bible says that Phineas turned away God's anger because he was zealous for God's honor. God ordained this family line to be the priesthood of Israel because they killed people? No. Because they actually cared about God's honor. Because zeal was the core of who these people were. Moses and Aaron are not warriors, but they both possess this same zeal. What was it about Moses and Aaron's family line that made them the right people in the moment of Israel's need? They're a priestly family, they're a zealous family, and none of them are perfect, right? But the statement that, that takes us through this genealogy is really that these are very ordinary, flawed people as they are. Moses is just like you and me. And that is that we often look at ourselves as unrefined, raw material, and we say, Lord, I can clearly see there's no way you could possibly use me for anything significant. God looks at that unrefined, raw material, and he proves his power by using such as you and Moses and Aaron. No, God still desires that his people would evidence a true zeal for his name, that his people really would have a hatred over sin. Zeal for God's name, courage looks different at different points in history. Perhaps today its best example would be if you and I began to have a real zeal, a real courage to do battle against the sin which dwells within our own hearts, to take the spear to it and see it cut out for God's honor. It seems like the Lord always uses ordinary vessels who care about God's honor and are willing to stand on the Lord's side to do things that are great. That's all Moses and Aaron were. In some ways, that's all you are as well. Who else would you rather have go into Pharaoh? Two guys born of a priestly family who are zealous for God's honor. And finally, you notice from this genealogy that this is a promised family. This is a family to whom God gave promises. Back in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham was standing in the land of Canaan, and then God put him to sleep. And you remember from that covenant with torn animals that God told him his descendants would be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then he told him, the fourth generation, I'm going to bring your offspring back to the land upon which you're sleeping right now, and I will use that fourth generation to judge this nation. Four generations. First generation in Egypt, verse 16, Levi's sons, Gershon, Libni, Shimei. Second generation, verse 18, the sons of Kohath, and Amran is one of those. Third generation, verse 20, Amran's sons, Aaron and Moses. Fourth generation, verse 25, Eleazar, Aaron's son. 
then you fast forward to Joshua chapter 14. The promised land is being divided up. And it's being divided up among Abraham's offspring. Joshua is the military leader. Who's standing next to Joshua as the spiritual leader? Eleazar. Aaron's son of the fourth generation. What's the point? Clearly God keeps his promises. But you see, Moses is writing in the third generation. He's standing on the cusp of the promised land, and he will not make it into the promised land, and he knows that. But I wonder if you can see what he's saying to the little ones in his midst who are of that fourth generation. Do you hear what he says? You know, 40 years back, I didn't really believe God. I made a ridiculous excuse. I told the Lord why it couldn't work and why I couldn't be his man for the job. And yet, look, friends, there's the promised land. It's right there across the river. Look with your own eyes. God has fulfilled his promises. Go and embrace the promise that he has offered to you. The Lord uses ordinary people to accomplish his purposes. Now, when you encounter a genealogy in the Bible... You ask, what is God saying by putting this right here? Aaron and Moses were the the right men for the job in that moment. And yet this genealogy, which is filled with people like Nadab and Abihu and Korah, and time doesn't permit me to tell you just how flawed this line is. And then you encounter the very first book of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1 where Matthew picks up a genealogy and he takes it all the way to Jesus Christ. Why is that listed as the very first thing you come to in the New Testament? Because the Old Testament people were looking for a priest. They were looking for a man who would be zealous for God's name. They were looking for a man who would fulfill God's promises. Which is why Matthew takes you to Christ. So that you might read and say, as Moses did to the third generation, this is a God who always fulfills his promises. Go! Embrace the promised Messiah that God has offered to you. Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. Jesus was appointed by God to serve as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 69 foretold what John chapter 2 said of Jesus, that God's priest must have a, a zeal for the house of God. And all the promises that were made by God were fulfilled in Abraham's true offspring. It's not you. Galatians 3 tells us it is Jesus. Not really surprising, is it? When Isaiah chapter 53 verse 2 foretold that the Messiah would have no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should really desire him. That's because the Lord delights to use what seems to us ordinary to accomplish his purposes. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, you tell us in your word that all of your purposes and all of your promises are fulfilled in Christ. I ask that you would give your people the courage to embrace our Lord Jesus who is offered here. We thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would cause it to land in our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.